Heavenly Father, we come before you with broken hearts as we confess our sins to you. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is our life. It's only through his blood that we can come before your holy throne without your wrath and your judgment. So we praise his great name before you as we confess our sins. We ask now humbly that the Holy Spirit will indwell in this place. I'm just a mouthpiece, O oh God. For the sake of your glory, empower me to preach your word faithfully this morning. We ask all these things humbly in the name of Christ. Amen. As you heard from Rob this morning, I'm part of the B team, but I am not the best, I confess. And in fact, I want to apologize to you before I start preaching because I'm not as good as John or Ryan, but I just ask God to be merciful to me and just give me the grace to be able to preach the gospel. Turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of God. And may the Lord bless the, the reading of his word and the preaching of his word. Now before I start unpacking these short verses, we need to understand the context of what James is talking about here. You guys all know what context means, right? One of the biggest mistakes a lot of preachers make is that they take verses from the Bible, and out of context they preach, which the author has no intention of going there. And I don't want to make the same mistake. So in order to understand who is James writing to, the audience, and what context does he speak to them about? That's really important. Turn quickly to chapter 1 of the book of James, and we'll see who James is speaking to. And by the way, you guys know who this James is, right? Who's writing? There are many Jameses, but this is the oldest brother, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, Greetings. So he's writing to churches, Jewish churches that are dispersed due to persecution. So he's writing to churches like the most epistles are, right? So he's writing to Christians, he seems like. However, he's also speaking to non-believers who are in churches. Because sadly, as you guys know, just because people come to church doesn't make them a Christian. There are many false Christians who are worldly Christians, 
that are not saved but are part of the church. And James is well aware of that situation and is confronting these worldly Christians. And this is whom he's speaking to. Now look at chapter 4 and go to verse 4 and this makes it clear what I'm talking about. It says, you adulterous people. Again, he's speaking to Christians in the churches. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying there are a bunch of Christians in churches that are friends with the world. What does that mean? It means that they're Christians, they call themselves Christians by name, yet the way they live their lives and what they think about their lives are not Christian because they love the world. So they are fake Christians. And he warns them here saying, don't you know they fear friends with the world, the worldly system, and if you love the world, you are enemies of God. You can't be both. You can't be friends with God and be friends with the world at the same time. And apparently, a lot of the people in these Jewish churches were doing that, being friends with the world and bring, being friends with God. And James is saying, no, if you're a friend with the world, you're enemies of God. This is a serious warning. And he called them adulterous. You're betraying God. That's what he's saying. And look at verse 5. Or do you suppose... It is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. What is he saying? He's saying when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is indwelling in yourself, in your heart, and he's encouraging you to love the Lord, to love God with all of your heart. But yet, you're not doing that. Instead, you're going back to the worldly ways that you used to love, and you're still in love with the world. And there is a war between the Holy Spirit that wants you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and God and be faithful to him, but you're being faithful and you're loving the world. That's what James is saying. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. So he's rebuking the people, but at the same time, he's being gracious because he's saying God gives more grace. Therefore, he says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he's giving them hope. It's not too late. Repent of your sins. And look at seven. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, because Satan is the one that's tempting you with the love of the world, and he will flee from you. Verse eight. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You're going to see the same theme in these verses that we're going to now start to unpack. Let's look at verse 13. First point. Verse 13. It says, worldly thinking, saying, and living. 
I'll read it again. This is how a, a Christian or non-Christian think about their life. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, it's obvious that James is upset here. This is a rebuke. This is a reprimand for sure. Come now, saying, come on now, you know better, to people who say, what are they saying? Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Is there inherently something evil, wrong about what this person just said, what these people said? Don't we say these kind of things all the time? When we plan to go someplace for a vacation or business trip, we say, hey, you know, um, I'm going to be going to a certain, certain city for two weeks on a business trip, and after that, I'm going to come back with some souvenirs for the family, talking to the wife. What is, what is, what is wrong with that? And the answer is inherently, there's nothing wrong with saying stuff like that. The only problem is that there's no mention of God here. This is a person or people who are self-confident about the things that they're going to accomplish, do, without the help of God or acknowledgement of who God is. And for a non-Christian, worldly people to say these things and do these things, it happens all the time. It's the way they think, obviously. It's normal. It's natural for people who don't know God to think this way. However, James is perturbed because Christians that he's speaking to in these churches are thinking the same things on this line. This is the worldly way of thinking. To say it another way, in today's vernacular, James has a problem with the, the American dream. You guys know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the American dream. I think so many Christians also buy into this American dream and they applaud it, they encourage it. I mean, who doesn't love the story from rags to riches story, right? You hear it all the time. Like Dave Thomas of Wendy's, you heard about his story? I, I know briefly, because I eat at Wendy's sometimes, so I kind of looked at Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's, and he was like a high school dropout. He was a failure. He tried the different businesses, he failed, and he finally became successful. And we look at stories like that, and we're like, wow, that's it. That's the American dream. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good looking. Just have to have a dream and a good plan and persistence. And if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. I have a daughter who just became a senior, and she has big plans and dreams and decisions that she needs to make, right? Like what college she's going to go to, what career she's going to pursue. And it would have been easy for me to say, hey, Candace, you're very smart. You can go to almost any college you want to go. If you put your mind to it, you can go to any college you want. And then choose a career that you think you, know, you want to pursue and just put your mind to it and your effort, be, del be del diligent, and you're going to succeed. That's the American dream. And you're going to have a good paying job, and you'll be a success. How many parents have said those things to their children? 
And it sounds positive, it sounds encouraging, it sounds all good, right? Wrong. That's the American dream. And James has a problem with that, and God has a problem with that. And that's why God is using James to speak out against the American dream. So guess what I told Candace? I spoke to her last night, in fact. I said, don't believe in that American dream. I, I told her, if Lord wills, you'll go to a certain, certain college. If Lord wills, you're going to become a pharmacist, lawyer, doctor, or whatever you dream of. So you can plan your plans and dream your dreams, but just remember, it's not up to human exertion. It's up to God. If the Lord wills, you will succeed in doing anything at all with your life. But the most important thing, Candace, I told her, is that you know God. Let's look at verse 14 now. Second part of today's discussion. Reality of humanity. And it's pretty plain we can see that from the verse. So after saying, come now, don't think that way, don't live that way, and this is the reason why, verse 14. Because you need to realize who you are as a human being. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's the reality of humanity. There's so many people, especially in the world, who are clueless to who God is, don't realize this. Now, there's two things here, right? The first part is you shouldn't think this way because you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So you can make your plan saying today or tomorrow, I'm going to go, I'm going to do whatever. Tomorrow might not come for you. Have you ever thought about that? You don't know what's going to happen two hours from now, let alone a whole day. You are a finite being who has limited knowledge, wisdom, and you have no right to say, I'm going to do something. And that's what most Americans and most people who don't know God think, right? I am the captain of my ship. I am the king of my castle. I'm going to do the things that I want to do. I am sovereign over my life. And James is saying, hold up. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to be like. Don't make any boasts, any claims like that. And the second part, of course, is that not only we are limited in knowledge, knowing what's going to happen, but at the same time, we are fragile. And that's what James says. He compares humanity, a person's lifespan, to a mist that appears for a little while and then gone, vanishes. Now, some people might make an objection to that and say, hey, wait a minute. We have better, better medical system now, and people are living a lot longer than before. Some people are living up to past 80s now, even 90s. The lifespan average is going up every year. I, I take offense to saying that we're missed. Well, let's be realistic here. You can live to be 150 years old. What is that in comparison to eternity? missed, if that. 
nothing. And therefore, you should not boast about things that you're going to do because you might not have the time to do it. You're fragile. Your life could be snuffed out any moment by a drunk driver, some criminal, natural disasters, disease, just a few to name. We're fragile. And therefore, we need to understand that our life is short. And that's the sad part, is because people know that they're gonna die one day, right? I and mean, everybody knows that. But instead of thinking about those things, what is the meaning of life? Is this all there is to life? This momentary life here on earth? They avoid that topic altogether and it's focused on renovating their bathrooms as if they're gonna live forever. They plan for retirement and how much money I'm gonna to have to retire. Now, I'm not against retirement plans, planning about your future days. But if that's the only thing you think about, a majority of the time that you think about, then you're totally off if you don't think about eternal things, namely about what's going to happen when, when God finally calls you. Your time is up. You guys know this verse, right? You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, 28 says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You hear that? For every human being who has ever been born, it is appointed. Think about the word appointed. You have an appointment with God at the end of your time. And no one can escape it. And after that comes what? The judgment. And what are you going to say when you meet the king of kings and lord of lords, Christ Jesus? I was a good man. I provided well for my family. I gave to charities. Is that what you're going to say? Or are you going to say, Jesus, this is the moment I've been waiting for, to see you face to face in all of your glory. And you're my savior. And I've been waiting for you all my life, counting the days when I will see you face to face. That's what he says. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, not thinking about their retirement and how much money they have in the bank and how much money they're going to pass on to their children. But sadly, even a lot of Christians who call themselves Christians, that's their obsession with life. Next part, three. Reality of God. Verse 15. Let's read it. So now we know what human beings are. Now let's look at who God is. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay. So when the word says instead, 
it obviously, there's a contrast here. And who is the Lord, and why does the Lord have, have this sovereign right to say to everybody, you will live if I want you to live. If you want to do anything, you only do it if it's my will. Unlike human being, again, going back to verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, obviously God knows what tomorrow is. And not only that, he knows all eternity. Again, you don't have to turn. I'll just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 is one of the most comprehensive statements that God makes about himself that should absolutely boggle our minds. And this is what God says. And we talk about knowledge of God. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. See, God is making a point. There's no other one like me. I'm one of a kind, and I'm going to tell you why. There's no one like me. And he says, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You see what God is saying here? He's saying, from the end, and where's the end? There's no end. God is forever. His kingdom is forever. So from eternity to eternity, because he has no beginning either, he said, I'm going to declare all the things that, that's not yet done, and I'm going to accomplish all things, because why? I am God. I'm not a fortune teller. I know what's going to happen, because I'm going to accomplish every one of those things from eternity to eternity. Try to wrap that thought in your mind and try to understand the amazing, incomprehensible wisdom of God. You see the difference? We don't know even what's gonna happen a few hours from now. God knows eternity to eternity what's gonna happen because he does it. There's no such thing as random events. God never reacts. He always acts. You can never say to God, surprise. You can, but you're going to be foolish. Because God is never surprised about anything. And you guys remember what the word of God says? Before the foundation of the world, our names are written in the book of life. Think about that. That's just a small glimpse of his foreknowledge, his wisdom. Another thing about God, why does God have the sovereignty over humanity? Does he have any rights? Of course he does. Again, don't turn. I'm going to read it to you. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. You guys should be familiar with this. It's poetic, one of the most beautiful statements about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And look at this statement again. It should boggle your minds. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Think about that. Jesus created 
everything, literally everything. The things that we can see and the things that we cannot see. You guys, I've spoken to this before, I think in Sunday school many times, about the vastness of the universe. You guys are familiar with that? I just researched a little bit, maybe so I can remember. I didn't write it down because I thought I would remember. But approximately, there's like two trillion galaxies in the universe. You guys know what galaxy is? Galaxy, each galaxy contains about two billion stars. We're talking about stars that are a million times bigger than this planet. Try to do the math, I, I can't. Two billion times two tr three trillion. How many stars are there? You can't count it. And all those stars are in their place doing what they're supposed to do because God created it. And he says, stay there. I'm jumping ahead of myself here. I'm going to read to you another verse. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, not only did he create everything that has ever been created, he upholds it, meaning he makes sure, like I said, all the stars, you do what you're supposed to do. And sun, you rise every morning and set each evening because he tells them to do. The word of his power. He commands the stars and the planets and gravity to happen, and it happens, because the Lord wills that it happen. Don't you think he deserves our attention, our thought, our obedience? I think so. And finally, again, this is one of the most comprehensive statements about God himself, Jesus, Revelations chapter 22, verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Again, he is everything. There's no one else like a God. And for people to not even consider anything about God at all in their daily lives, and they, they make all kind of plans to go vacations and, and make business trips and business plans and all those things without God in the equation, it's not acceptable. It makes James angry, and he rebukes the people, especially Christians, again, who call themselves Christians, think that way, live that way. And that's the point of this text that we're studying here. Next, number four, Christian way of thinking, saying, and living. Same verse that I just read. So if you know this great God who created the universe, who sustains the universe with the word of his power, what our response should be is what exactly James says, right? I'll read it again. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See the statement that I read earlier in verse 13, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you add in those words, if the Lord wills. 
If the Lord wills, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit and there will be a perfect statement. Or say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit if the Lord wills. You can add it in the front or in the end, it doesn't matter. So let me ask you, Christians, as you examine your hearts, that you believe that you're a true believer, do you think this way? Do you say things like this to others, to yourself? Maybe not out loud, right? I mean, it's kind of weird. Your wife tells you to get some eggs from Safeway, and you say, honey, I'll be back if the Lord wills. And she might be like, do you have COVID? I mean, something wrong with you? You guys know what I'm talking about. You don't have to necessarily say it, but do you actually believe that? Yes. Even getting eggs from a store will not happen if the Lord does not will. Simple things like that. I'll take it further. A breath, the next breath that you're going to take just now, you took, comes from God. If the Lord wills, you will breathe another breath. As simple as that. You exist because the Lord wills. There's no other reason. Now, do Christians back in the old days, do they really talk like that and think like that? And the answer is yes. Again, you don't have to turn. I'll just read it to you, okay? Acts chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking. And, the people, and when, when they asked him to stay, so people from the Ephesus is asking Paul, please stay longer with us. Could they enjoy Paul's company, his teaching? Look what the answer is. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, as he's leaving, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19 talking to the Corinthians, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And Apostle Paul had really good reason to say these kind of things. You guys know why. His life was treacherous. Every town he goes to preach the good news, there usually a mob would form, and he would usually get beaten or put in prison, and his life threatened. He was stoned before left for dead, imprisoned many, many times, many, many beatings each town he went. So he, doesn't, he honestly doesn't know. I'm going to try to come back, but if the Lord wills, if I survive another beating, another imprisonment maybe, another riot, I should come back, but I have no idea because my life is in God's hand. If the Lord wills, I'll be back. And not only Paul, but many Christians believe that way, and we should think the same way, say the same way, and live that way so that people know that God is sovereign over our lives and we are not sovereign over our lives. Let's look at the next one. Number five, arrogance and boasting is evil. 
the next verse, 16. Let's look at it. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So according to James, this attitude, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit that is boasting. And all boasting is evil and is arrogance. Again, if you're not a believer, it's okay for you to say things like that because you don't believe in God. You believe that you're sovereign over your lives. But as a Christian, to not regard God in the equation of your life, it is boasting, it is arrogance, and it is evil. Just think about that. These are strong words. I'll be the first to confess to you that in my Christian life, as I examine it, there are temptations in my life, and it is so easy to love the world. You guys know the Boston Celtics? Anybody Boston Celtics fan here? They're in the finals, in I don't know how many years, and they won the first game of their championship. And I got really excited. I'm not gonna say I was emotional, I think that's too much, but I was very excited, I was happy. And I love to go to the YouTube channel and listen to these, you know, talking heads, heaping praise on the Celtics. I'm like, yeah, that's my team. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, what is Boston Celtics winning the championship going to do to my life? What benefit do I have? And I was like, nothing. It's foolish. But we're such a simpletons. We're so deceived by pleasures of the world, right? You know, that's why people are obsessed with sports, you know, like, we won. No, they won. <laughs> they don't care about you, fans, really. They say they do, but they're more interested in their $25 million a year contracts and endorsements. That's what they care about. So we really need to, as Christians, guard our hearts and say, am I a friend of the world, like James warned us in verse 4? Because if you are, your enemies with God. God is not pleased. God doesn't wink and say, oh, you know what, I, I get it. You know, Celtics are pretty good. You know, it's good to be excited. The fact that you, you love vacations more than you know, praying and having quiet time with me is okay. I understand. No. God sees as treason, adulterous. Your heart is far from me. You say the right words and you come to church, but your actions speak otherwise, that you don't really love me, that you love the world much more than you love me. That's the sad reality of a lot of Christians, the way they live, and we shouldn't be like that. However, there is a good boasting, okay? There's a positive boasting. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, I know what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about Galatians chapter 6, right? Yes, exactly. Again, don't turn there. I'll just read it. And I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. But I have like thousands of favorite verses. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. This is what Paul says. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see what he's saying? If you know Paul's life briefly, I'll say briefly, okay? Paul was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was one of the leading young Pharisees, rising stars. He was destined to become the next high priest. And he had the praise of man. He had all the good things, the treasures of being a Pharisee. Money, fame, fortune, you name it. He had it all. He knows what it means to be worldly. And he loved being a Pharisee and all the things that came with it. And then he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. His life turned upside down, literally. And what happened? He saw the cross of Jesus Christ as his only boast because without the cross, he knew he was damned. His righteous works wore filthy garments and he's going to perish trusting in his works as a Pharisee, and he, and he would have been went to hell after he died. But he realized it is only the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, that there is joy, that there's pleasures forevermore. And he said, I trade everything to know Christ, to know him crucified. And he says, and I to the world. It means... I crucify myself to the world. All the worldly pleasures have no effect on me now because I'm crucified to the world. I'm dead to the pleasures of the world. Can we honestly say that about our lives as well, like Paul? I am crucified to the world. It's not easy. As I mentioned earlier, we're so simple. We're so easily pleased with a new restaurant, right? A new recipe and a new vacation place, new sport, whatever, hobbies, new gadget they come up with. We need to seriously think about eternal things and realize, as we sang, all we have is Christ. There's our only hope. The last point, and the final point before we close, application. And you're gonna see that in the last verse. After James had rebuked the people severely, and he ends with another rebuke, but a warning, right? Look what he says. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So again, he's addressing both to the Christians, genuine Christians, be aware. You know what to do. You know what the right thing to do. You know if the Lord wills, you will do whatever. If the Lord wills, you're saved. You don't trust on your own abilities, your works. You trust in the blood of Christ only. You know the right things. So are you living like that? Are you doing the right things because of that knowledge that you have? That's what he's saying. Because if you don't, it is sin. And as Christians, the good news is that we have this full confidence knowing that the blood of Christ avails for all of our sin. Our sins are fully forgiven. But that doesn't mean we cavalierly think 
Sinning is no big deal because we're so forgiven of our sins, right? Genuine Christians are broken over our sins, saying, how can I do those things, think those things when Christ paid such a heavy price for my salvation? That's how genuine Christians think. Fake Christians like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a human being. I'm sure Jesus understands. But at the same time, he's also talking to these fake Christians and he's warning them, you better repent of your sins because if you don't, there's condemnation. You know what's going to happen to you. So for Christians, I want to encourage you, genuine Christians, to guard your hearts and your minds and be aware of this fatal attraction to the worldly things. Don't think that you're immune. You're not Apostle Paul, okay? Guard your hearts. Live every day with this mindset. Humble yourself and say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to continue to believe. I'm going to continue to worship the true God. It's not dependent on my efforts, my exertion. It's depending on God. And therefore, you ask God to give you the strength, give you the wisdom each day for your lives. That's what genuine Christians do. And for the non-believers, I want to just share, you, share with you a couple of verses here. Again, don't turn. I'll just read it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 and 7. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So again, this is a warning and encouragement. Remember that you must seek the Lord while he may be found. When the Lord wills that you receive Christ, that's when you need to seek him. Don't take it for granted that God's going to give you opportunities after opportunities. You don't know what tomorrow brings. That's what the scripture says. And this is the important thing. Let the wicked forsake his way. So do you acknowledge that you're a wicked sinner? Because if you don't, then you can't be saved. You must acknowledge that you're a wicked sinner in need of a savior before you can be saved. And this is the comforting part. Even though you're unrighteous and wicked, you can repent and you return to the Lord and he will have compassion on you and he will abundantly pardon all of your sins. All of your worldly ways, he will forgive you. And I want to close with a beautiful story of God's grace. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. So when Jesus came down, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
It's a simple story, but this is so profound and beautiful because think about this. As you guys know, lepers were highly contagious and they were se separated from everybody. Even their own family couldn't go near them. In fact, when the lepers were in public areas and people came kind of closer to them, they were told to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people would stay away from them. But this leper was so desperate, and when he saw Jesus, and he knew about Jesus' healing powers, right? Then he became bold. But look, he says, he knelt before him in submission to Christ. And he doesn't make any demands here. He simply says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. See what he's saying? Lord, I know you have the power, but I have no authority, no right to demand that you heal me. But if you're willing, if you will, you can make me clean. And look at what Jesus does. He could have said, oh, you know, you're a leper, please stay away. I don't want to be infected. But he touches him which is totally unthinkable. You don't do that. You don't touch a leper because you become unclean. But Jesus does that to demonstrate, I came for this purpose, right? He came to touch sinners and cure them from their sins so that they may live while because he becomes unclean, taking up the, the sins of the world, he is cru crucified and receives God's judgment. That's the picture here. And of course, he says, I will be clean, and he's healed. And I would like to think that this leper, I will see him in heaven. I'm confident that he was not only healed of his leprosy, but of his sin as well, that he had saving faith, and he's saved, and he's in glory right now as I speak. So that's it. For those who are Christians, continue to believe that the Lord wills, and that's why you're believing. And if you're not a believer, if you have any doubt, please take this warning seriously. It's not too late. Ask God to come into your life and change your worldly way of thinking, of talking and living, and he will pardon you abundantly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rebuke, reprimand that was given from James. We need to realize, Father, that we are weak in our faith. We are easily tempted to go astray, to wander away from our faith. So we ask that you would keep us wide awake by reading your word and spending our time in fellowship with you and to pray to you and asking, Lord, if you will, you can continue to give me wisdom and insight that I may continue to believe in your great name. And for those who don't know you, I ask your Holy Spirit to convict their hearts. And may they turn to you and repent of their sins and receive Christ Jesus as our Lord, Savior, and have everlasting life. I ask all these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I'm going to do my first benediction. Um, hopefully I do it right. John raises his hand like that, so I'm going to do the same thing. 
as we consider the unfathomable, infinite knowledge and wisdom of our great God, we cannot help but to give all the glory and honor and praise to him alone. May we continue to rejoice in the greatness of our salvation and give thanks to the only sovereign God of the universe who shall reign forevermore. We have great week.